up, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. You are riding with D-Train, and tonight we are talking about no-knock raids. And a no-knock raid is exactly what it sounds like. Police go to the judge for a warrant, which a no-knock raid is issued, um, and police come to your house, and they basically kick down your door, and they are allowed to to search your house for any drugs and weapons, whatever it is that they're looking for. And the purpose of a no-knock raid is to allow police the opportunity to surprise whoever it is that they're looking for in the home and that this individual doesn't have the opportunity to either hide drugs or flush it down the toilet or to, to hide any kind of weapons that they might have. And so they have the, the upper hand and the element of surprise on their hand. Well, the problem with no-knock raids is is that they're typically conducted either really late at night or early on in the morning when people are less likely to suspect anything going on. But also another problem is is that people particularly uh, take the police officers as being criminals. And so uh, police get shot in the process um innocent bystanders get shot in the process as well as being killed and this is this is a phenomenon going on and there's nothing new it's been going on since the 1970s really but back in the 1960s SWAT was introduced and it was typically used for emergency like situations like if there was a plane hijacking or there was a bank robbery in process or something of that sort. But nowadays, police are able to use no-knock raids on just very simple and minor um, grievances or, or warrants. And the likelihood of police finding any significant amount of drugs or even weapons in the house tends to be really low. And the risk-reward is definitely not in the favor of police at least uh, statistically. But the thing is, is that whenever police are able to come in your home and they find these drugs or these guns, they're able to use the civil asset forfeiture. The cops are able to use the civil asset forfeiture law in order to not only confiscate any drugs or any money that you have, but in a lot of cases, and in most cases, they're able to keep your property right they keep your house or if you have a car they'll take your car and anything else that they might have in the house that they see that's of value they'll go ahead and take it and they'll keep it as their own now there's a process to it of course you know it has to to sit for so long and it has to be inventoried and um, they have to wait a certain amount of time before the judges give them an okay to basically split up the goods. I mean, it's really what it is. They take your stuff and everybody gets a cut and police officers or these police departments use this money to fund the department. They use this money to to fund the department and whatever needs that they might have. It could be uniforms. It could be new vehicles. They could issue new weapons. Like this day and age, um, they'll have body cams, or some of them even have um, head cams where, you know, they, they wear it 
just around the ear and to provide a little bit more transparency. So the thing is, is that our Fourth Amendment right is supposed to protect us from unlawful uh, seizures and um, and also uh, searches as well. So the Fourth Amendment states that the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, nor warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly uh, describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So probable cause is needed in order for uh, police to, to just come into your home and search and to, to arrest you and so on and so forth. But the, one of the problems are, is that these cops are getting tips and information from former drug dealers or individuals that are facing jail time and more than likely looking for a lighter sentence. So they are snitching on a friend and they are giving out terrible, horrible uh, misinformation and innocent people are suffering because of it. It's not just uh, the bad information, it's also the practices by the law enforcement. I mean, you have to do your homework, right? Um, just because I'm here on this podcast and I'm telling you a story or I'm giving you uh, what are facts, you should still go and do your own homework and try to find out things on your own, you know, individuals in public because you don't have any uh, right to privacy and public spaces, you know, they could use uh, sound devices in order to pick up your voice or your conversations and try to, to see if there is really a reason for them to, to come in your home and take any, any items that you may have that are considered legal. But that's not the case. Law enforcement, they don't want to do their own homework. They just go on hearsay and they're lazy and sloppy about, about their work. So... You have all these these bystanders and people who are minding their own business getting caught getting caught in the crossfire and suffering losses and damages whereas whenever these things occur um police are not or the, the police departments are not paying for the damages and a lot of times they don't even meaning the the homeowners don't even get an apology for the things that have occurred. So let's go back and talk a little bit about when SWAT first originated. It was back in the 1960s, like I had said earlier. And by the 1980s, they were used for drug raids instead of hijacks and so on, like I had mentioned. They also used them for uh, prison escapes, right? This criminologist named Peter Krasner reported between 1989 and 2001, at least 780 cases of botched raids reached the appellate level of the court. And um, Peter Kraska is known for his research in militarization of the police. And he's also an author and he's written several books and does a lot of study and analysis of um, raids by the police. And he keeps statistics of the different things that go on during a raid. And he's widely used for his knowledge, his expertise in this situation. I want to go on and talk to you about a couple stories. This one particular story is 
by an individual named Henry McGee, who back in 2013 lived in um, Burleson County. There was a tip about weed that had caused cops to, to come to his house and kick down his door. The informant talked about long stalks of weed and guns in the home and said that basically that um, McGee was ready for war. So, you, you know, you might want to be careful. So without really doing any further analysis or trying to gather any more information, they took their word, they took the word of the so-called, you know, informant, credible informant, and they had kicked down McGee's door. And so Henry McGee thought he was being robbed, like most people do, and his girlfriend was pregnant at the time. And McGee ended up shooting and killing a sergeant. The sergeant's name was Adam Sowers. And Sowers was shot coming through the door, rightfully so. You just uh, try to walk up in somebody's house without knocking, guns drawn, so on and so forth. It doesn't make any sense. You're walking around somebody's house in the middle of the night or on the outside of their house, checking windows and checking doors, just asking to get shot. And so how is it the homeowner's fault? You know, people are trying to forcibly come in their house, even if they have guns and badges. Dude, you don't forcibly try to get into somebody's house. Like, it's foolish. It's foolishness. It's unfathomable why the individual would think or the government would think that it's okay and that there's not going to be any consequences for that. But the thing is, is that even though when these homeowners are protecting themselves, they end up, you know, getting killed or getting charged. And in this case, um, Henry McGee wasn't charged with murder, um, but they try to prosecute him and they try to get him on the drug charges. And he ended up spending a little bit of time in jail and I mean, he was let out on like $50,000 um, on bond. So let's go on to this next story. And this story and Marvin Guy, his story is kind of similar to McGee's where he thought that it was also a robbery and um, he tried to uh, protect his household and ended up shooting an officer in the face. It seems like that's a commonality going on whenever you're trying to walk through somebody's door, trying to pick their lock, just get a bullet right in the face. So anyway, Marvin Guy, uh, there was another no-knock raid um, early in the morning, and um, Mr. Guy was charged with um, the death penalty, and he was charged uh, for uh, killing this officer. And the thing about this is that the difference between the two is that um, in Marvin Guy's house, they try to come in through the window. And McGee's house, they try to come in through the door. And um, McGee, excuse me, Marvin Guy did not have, um, actually, uh, Marvin Guy, he had done prison time before for robbery and a weapons charge. And also, uh, and he was arrested before for for having possession of marijuana. And also, uh, he had a DUI on his record. And so, uh, basically, this man was charged with murder. And actually, his, his bond was set at like, I want to say it was about a half a million dollars. And so, he basically was thrown in jail and... 
they gave him the, the murder charge because he had priors. So the man had did time in society, right? He's supposed to be rehabilitated and let out. And so he gets, you know, put in jail, you know, for murder for life because somebody tried to walk into his house and he shot him. For one, that's not his fault that somebody tried to go in there and, and sneak about his house and crawl through the window. Um, second of all, the man has a right to defend his home. And also the fact that he had a previous charge of robbery and some weapons should take no bearing of the case. That has nothing to do with this particular case. It has nothing to do with this particular situation at hand. So you telling me because something I did 20 years ago that I already had paid for um, with either time of my life that I got to pay for it again if something else occurs, that doesn't make any sense. So, it, you know, that actually makes me think about whenever we're talking about reparations. You hear people talk all the time about, well, you know, this is 150 years ago and, you know, um, everybody that was a part of that is, is dead now. So we shouldn't have to, to pay for the sins of, of somebody else. Um, but that's how America operates, right? They have, they charge, they charge people and they continuously make them pay for their past sins. So it was good enough for our legislators to, to charge us for things that we have done back in the past, but it's not okay for us to, to tell them that we want to be taken care of, of past sins. You see how, how backwards that is? On the brisk night of November 21st, 2006, gunshots sounded on the quiet northwest Atlanta Neal Street. On this evening, there were two victims the African-American community and its loving mother, Katherine Johnson, who lie brutally murdered in cold blood by a group of individuals whose slogan is to protect and serve. Atlanta Police Narcotics Team Officers Jason Smith and Gray Jr. lied to obtain a no-knock warrant which is used in drug-related cases. Johnson managed to shoot Junior three times, police said, in the face, the leg, and in the center part of his protective vest. The officers then in secret planted drugs inside the home of the 92-year-old woman. They even went as far as securing a confidential informant to concur with their attempted cover-up. Sarah Dozier, niece of Johnson, filed a lawsuit against the police chief, Richard Pennington, and the two officers who were involved in the fatal shooting. The officers have since been federally indicted, entered a guilty plea, and are facing 10 to 12 years. A SWAT team blew a hole in this baby's chest. Bukam Fonasavan is not yet two years old. 
a flashbang grenade was thrown and landed in his crib. He's fighting for his life, still covered in burns, with a wound that exposes his ribs. While the SWAT team was looking for drugs, which they never found, the family member they were looking for doesn't even live in the same house. That's according to the toddler's parents, who, by the way, are demanding a federal investigation. But few victims have seen justice. Tarika Wilson wasn't a suspect, but she died when SWAT officers broke down her door and opened fire. She was holding her one-year-old son. The boy was injured, but did survive. The team was looking for her boyfriend on suspicion of drug dealing. Now, knowing there would likely be a pregnant woman inside, a SWAT team threw a flashbang grenade after breaking down the door to serve a search warrant in a drug case. No injuries were reported here. That wasn't the case for Yuri Stamp, a 68-year-old who was shot while following orders to lay down on the floor when an officer's gun discharged. Stamp wasn't a suspect. His girlfriend's son was on suspicion of selling drugs. Only he was arrested outside the house just minutes before the raid, but the team decided to go in anyway. Joining us in the now tonight is Marcus Coleman. He's the spokesperson for the family of the toddler who was seriously injured by a SWAT team uh, flashbang grenade in May. Thanks for being with us. It seems to be one of the problems here is that tactics that are meant for the battlefield are being used to serve search warrants mostly, and in many cases on suspicions of drug crimes. Absolutely. Tell us more about the case that you're representing. Uh, well, the family of Bumkam uh, Fonsavan, he at the time was an 18-month-old. Uh, since this tragedy has happened, he has turned 19 months. An awesome, awesome, strong little boy. Um, I was listening to some of the news coverage as I was awaiting, and um, you know, there was a no-knock warrant that was served on this household. Uh, this family was visiting from Wisconsin. They had actually lost a home as far as a trailer they were living in that had burned to the ground in Wisconsin, which was their reason for their brief stay in Habersham County, Georgia. Uh, this home uh, where the no-knock warrant was served, I want to make sure it's clear to your audience that this family of six, there are also three little girls, ages seven, five, and three, of course, mother and father, and the young at that point in time, 18-month-old. They stay in a renovated room. It would be the equivalent of a garage being renovated in, in order to have a living den area. Well, this flash-stun grenade was tossed into a room of four small children. The tragedy, of course, was that it landed in the playpen of Bunkam Bolsavan, but it was four small children that were living in this space where this uh, explosive device was thrown. Uh, there have been reports that there was no way to know that there were young children in this household. Uh, that is totally false. Uh, the door that was used for entry, not even two feet from this door, uh, was a minivan of the Fosavon family uh, here in the States. I'm not sure how it works there, but there are stickers, which are basically stick man figures that uh, plenty of people here in the States use to show a mother, father, and however many small children that you have to represent the family. That stick man collage was in the back window, but even more so, there were four 
car seats located in this minivan less than two feet away from the door. That's not to mention this family had been there for almost two months. The children had been playing in the front yard. Any good policing, any due diligence of police work would have revealed that there were small children in this home. How do you respond to reports that there was information that the SWAT team had that someone could have been armed within the house? Well, that's already been rebutted. Uh, the person that they were looking for uh, is a was the son of the homeowner. Uh, he had been out of that home for a couple of months prior to this raid. Uh, it was documented that there was a robbery that took place at this home over a year ago. Uh, and in that robbery, the actual uh, suspect they were looking for was the victim. And the robbers were the ones that had these heavily, or that were heavily armed and had these assault rifles. Initially, it was reported that the actual suspect was the owner of these rifles. But I have to uh, thank some local news networks here that were able to uncover uh, that fallacy. This guy was the owner of a small caliber 22 pistol. He had no high weapon assault rifles whatsoever. So just a fallacy in that regard. What does this raid uh, and the situation with the family that you're representing say about the American police system, about militarization? Who exactly are they arming up against? Well, you know, that's one of the major things. This is not my first case, unfortunately, uh, that I've dealt with. Uh, several years ago, in 2007, there was a case that caught national news with a 92-year-old African-American woman by the name of Katherine Johnston, uh, where a no-knock warrant was served on her at her residence, uh, and she fired a warning shot in fear, and she lived in a bad area, in fear that, of course, someone was breaking into her home. She was riddled with bullets. Uh, and then, to make matters worse, there was a cover-up with basically planting evidence uh, in her home. There are several Atlanta police department officers or ex-police department officers who are in jail at this point in time behind that. Uh, we find, statistically, and we're so thankful for the ACLU, who actually one of their national members came out to a rally that we had a couple of weeks ago in the county of Habersham, right before the completion of their report, but we find statistically that people of color and people in low income areas and communities get dealt with this kind of blunt force. If you're in any influential community or if you have any uh, influence personally, you tend to get a knock at the door or even a courtesy call saying surrender. Uh, so we really view this as the tipping point with these tragedies that have happened. There's a matrix that's happening here, and we're going to crack the code. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I said, you know what? It's the, uh, it's the four Ds. It's the four Ds. What are the four Ds? They dismiss you. It was perfected on women hundreds of years ago. Just dismiss you. Hey, you know what? I'm not getting a fair shake here. I'm just going to, they just dismiss you. Then they, uh, then you get a little upset about being dismissed and you say, no, no, this is real. We have to really get this on track. Then they discredit you. Mm -hmm. Oh, look at that. Okay. And then you get really a little louder, a little bit more aggressive, not in a, in a bad way, but like we have to really deal with this. Then they move on to that third D and they have to move on to that third D to get, to get right with their Christian selves. They demonize you. Mm -hmm. And then once they hit that third D and they demonize you, 
they have a green light to go to that inevitable fourth D, destroy you. Right. So it's dismiss, discredit, demonize, destroy. And I watched and I looked at it and I said, wow, what is going on here? And I said, you know, we are positioned to fail because of the nature of how we came into this country. We were brought here to create wealth, not to share the wealth. Mm -hmm. And you're brought here to build wealth, to make people wealthy, not to share it. And the moment we became free, we became a liability to them. And that's when they kicked in and said, here you go. I'm going to incarcerate you. 